are one in Christ. And what we're going to study this morning is that we as a body of believers are one. So we're going to look at the oneness of the body, and then we're going to transition from the oneness of the body to the individual giftedness of each body part. And then the last thing we're going to look at is what gave Christ the right to freely dispense the gifts to the body as he desired. And as he desires, you see? So the oneness of the body, transitioning into the individual giftedness of each body part, and then how and why Christ, our Lord and Savior, had the ability or was granted the ability from the Father to dispense the gifts as he so freely chooses. Now, we've got to understand something. We understand the doctrine of salvation is justification, sanctification, and glorification. Salvation comes in three parts. Past, present, and future. When God broke you and brought you unto himself, dispensed his grace, and breathed spiritual life in you, at that moment you were justified, you were declared free from all sin and blame. You are not held accountable now. You will not have to pay the price of sin, which is eternal separation from God. Therefore, you're justified. And immediately he sets you apart. That's what it means to be sanctified. And to be set apart unto holiness, he says, because of my righteousness that covers you, you're justified, I set you apart as holy. Because when God sees you, he sees you covered with the righteousness of the Son. Therefore, he sets you apart as holy. And he does a work in you that makes us practically righteous day by day as we live out that which we already are. Amen? Justified, sanctified, and the hope that we have is one day we enter that finish line and we step into the presence of God be glorified. Justification, sanctification, glorification. Now, if you think about the body like this, we understand that justification unites us as one. We're gathered here together day, today because of the justification which God has placed on our account. So that unites us. Sanctification grows us. Because we're justified, God's not going to let us stay the same. Amen? You just don't say some prayer and you're in. Okay? True salvation is a, begins with repentance and belief. And belief leads to a changed life. If Christ conforms you into the image of himself. So sanctification grows us. Justification unites us. Sanctification grows us. And glorification compels us. It compel, compels us to continue on that which God has already made us as one. It's called unification. Unity. Unity as one. It's the glorification and the hope that we have that we're going home that compels us to continue to remain and function as a body that is healthy. You get it? Justified, sanctified, glorified. It unites us, sanctification grows us, glorification compels us to run the race with what? Endurance. Endurance. And we must endure. Now, just as the uh, human head controls the body, Christ, Christ, our Lord and Savior, governs this body. All right? Christ wants to govern the body. He does govern the body. You, with your will that has been set free as a believer can either choose to abide in him or not. And if you're a believer and you choose not to abide in him, what does he do to those he loves? 
He chastens or he disciplines to get us back in line to rightly represent and rightly reflect the head, which is Christ. See, the body parts are here to complement the head. The body parts are here to complement the head. We know in Scripture, Christ is the head of the church. Grace has been dispensed to each one of you, if you're a believer here today, and you function now within the body, hopefully in a way that brings honor and glory to the head. The head on top of your physical body gives the direction as to what your feet and hands do, what your body does. And that which you do with your body reflects what's up here. Okay? If you light a bong and take a hit, of marijuana, that's a reflection of what's going on in your head. That's a reflection of that which you are giving yourself to. You double up your fist and blast someone who wrongs you or offends you, that's a reflection of what's going on in your head. As believers saved by grace, God has given you a gift to function within this body as one, to rightly reflect, to rightly complement, rightly fulfill the head. Jesus Christ, the head of the church. So we're going to look at this oneness. You see, the church body, you guys, it's, it's limited when sin infects even one part. If sinners saved by grace, if there's sin in the camp, it dishonors and disrespects the head. And for us as believers to be unified as one, We've got to be operating and functioning in the power of the Holy Spirit, which has been granted to us to rightly reflect the head as we all operate and function as one. And that's what we're going to study today. Does your life complement Christ? That's the question. Does your life complement Christ? Does it rightly reflect, does your life and lifestyle rightly reflect the head of your faith, the saving grace of God through His Son Jesus Christ? Or does it dishonor? Do you let your light so shine before men that men look at your good works of your life and bring glory to God in heaven and glorify God in heaven? See, that's the things that we've got to keep ourselves in check of because we're saved by grace. We are saved by the grace of God. And as we've been learning, when we operate and function according to the grace that's been dispensed to us, this is what happens, guys, as a body. We're unified as what? Unified as one. Unified as one. There's one thing that will dismantle the very thing in which God wants you to be. It's pride. We looked at that last week. If you want to learn about pride and it's the core of all sin, you can get the, the CD from last week. But we looked at verse 2. Check it out now. Let's look at this. Let's read through this. I want to read chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, and then we'll study verses 4 through 10. Verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in what? Love. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all, and through all, and in you all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. 
Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive, and he gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now, we, we've learned over the past weeks that we're simply called to walk worthy of the calling. The calling is the calling of salvation. We learned in chapters 1 through 3 that you are indeed justified by faith. Your position in Christ is what? Perfection. Here's your position in Christ. We're simply called to walk in a manner that matches the position. Live your life from grace. This is your position. Therefore, live a life that rightly reflects your position. Walk worthy of this. Walk worthy of this. Walk as a Christian. Live as a Christian. Think of as a Christian because the Holy Spirit's been imparted to you. You have all of the power and all of the, the ability to be a spiritual woman and be a spiritual man of God. Therefore, walk worthy, he says. And where does it begin, practically speaking? Quick review. It begins with lowliness of the mind. Lowliness. Verse 2, lowliness means humility of the heart. It means to depress, lowly in mind, lowly in spirit. Do not, you, we ought not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought, right? And a lowly mindset and a lowly heart leads to an outward meekness, which is gentleness. So a lowly mind or a humble mind or a humble way of thinking, a humble heart leads to a meek lifestyle. It manifests itself outwardly. We learned that meekness is not weakness, but it's power under what? Under control. It's like the massive stallion that's broken and he is now usable. You can utilize that strength under power, otherwise he'll kill you. Right? So lowliness, humility of mind leads to gentleness and meekness, which enables us to have long-suffering. Patience means to suffer what? Long. Suffer long. And not only is it patience with people, but it's patience in circumstances. Because your, the faith that you profess, believer, will be tested. And your faith will manifest itself by the trials that God allows to enter your life. Anybody can say, yeah, Jesus is Lord. Amen? So long-suffering. And that leads us to bearing with one another in what? Love. This is forbearing love. This means to put up with. We've got to put up with each other, brothers and sisters, right? And if you let your flesh get in the way, you will be as irritating to others as they are to you. You get it? Long-suffering. Enduring with one another. Enduring in circumstances. In what? We endure with what? Love. That's agape love. It means to put a blanket on it. To put a veil on it. Remember in First Peter it says, love covers a multitude of sins. When you're walking in that unconditional love, enduring with one another in that love, you're able to actually throw a blanket, put a veil on sin. Perhaps sin of others. You're able to look with an eternal perspective of the people in your life and around you. Enduring with love. People that are faithless, people that are weak in the faith, other brothers and sisters who are morally weak, spiritually weak, 
We're able to come up alongside of them and endure with them and hold them up and walk with them. So walking worthy begins with lowliness, and it leads to these other, we, we call this a progression. A progression. We progress, we progress upward from the state of lowliness. And then that leads to, verse 3, endeavoring to do what? Key word, look at it, keep. Keep the what? Keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of what? Peace. See, we're not called to form unity. Guys, check it out. We're not called to form unity. The unity's already been formed by Jesus Christ and His finished work on your behalf and on my behalf. Therefore, we are called to keep it. We are one, guys, whether you like it or not. Look at your brother or sister next to you and say, we are one. Okay, we are one. Whether you dig the person next to you, whether they irritate you sometimes, you are one with them. You are a body part. They are a body part in Christ that makes up the whole. Therefore, we are called to keep that unity. Endeavoring. It means to work hard at it. Hey, check it out. We're called to work hard at it. That's what it is to endeavor, to keep it. All in the bond of what? In the bond of peace. Bond here means a belt. And this belt binds together humility, meekness, mutual forbearance, all in love. It binds it together. The bond of peace binds it together as one. You know what, guys? You will never win the battle on the outside until you win the battle on the inside. The battle on the inside between you and God, the work of the Holy Spirit in you, until that is defeated, which is submission on your part, by the way. Submission on your part to the Lordship of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. And then, as we know in chapter 3, we can be filled with the fullness of who? The fullness of God. And when you're filled with the fullness of God, you are able to endure with love. Peace. The bond of peace. James 4.1. You want to know where wars and fights come from among y'all? Us all? James 4.1 says this. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? James 4.1. You can mark that. What about peace? For the Christian, Colossians 3.15 says this. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which also you were called in one body. And be thankful. Hey, check it out. Let the peace of Christ rule your heart. The word rule means this. Check it out. The word rule means arbitrate. The word rule means, modern translation, to referee. In a football game, when a referee blows the whistle, what do you do? You stop doing exactly what you're, gonna, what you're doing. The play stops. The whistle blows, it either starts or it stops, one or the other. Let the peace of God referee your heart. If the peace isn't there... Lord, open my eyes. What sin is there in my life that is hindering the peacefulness of your presence in my life? Because remember, as we studied in chapter 3, Christ, if you're a believer, he lives in you. But the question is, is he at home in you? You see? He's in you if you're a true believer. The question is, is he at home? And until you yield yourself to the power and leading of the Holy Spirit, he can't settle down and be at home. When he's settled down and he's at home, you are able to do above and beyond what you can think or imagine, you see. Then you're able to walk worthy. And it leads to all of this, these wonderful attributes that are manifest in and through your life and my life so that we can be one. 
and that you can operate as the hand. You can operate as the foot. You can operate as the tongue. You can operate as the eye. And if you're an eye, you're not going to compete with someone who is a tongue. Or if you're a foot, you're not going to compete with someone who's a hand. If you're a liver, the unpresentable parts, right? A liver hanging around the neck. If it was outside of your body, it wouldn't be that pleasurable to look at, would it? Is it easy to look into someone's eyes with beautiful, sparkling, radiant, almond eyes or blue eyes or green eyes or whatever? It's easy to look at, isn't it? Or a pretty face. A liver, though it's not as appealing as beautiful eyes, it serves a function, and if it didn't serve its function, what happens to the body? You die. So there's a purpose for every part of the body. And that's why Paul even says, talks about the less presentable parts of 1 Corinthians, you see. So here it is, guys. Peace. We're unified and tied together in the bond of peace. That's what we're called to keep. Okay, guess what? Here it is. There is no peace without what? Grace. Paul opens the letter in Ephesians chapter 4. Grace and Peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Same is true in the other epistles. Grace and peace. There is no peace without grace. Grace is a gift. Grace is a gift. Unmerited favor. See, Christianity, you guys, isn't just about what you do. It all begins with this. What Christ has done for you. We do because Christ has done for us. We're living in response to what Christ has done for us, you see. It's a life of response. If you try to do, 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 and you're not responding to grace, then you're going to lead a legalistic lifestyle. And you're going to work and attempt to try to find favor in the sight of God, right? We're working from what he's done. We work from it, not for it. So grace has been dispensed on your account. Grace is this. It's a gift of check it out. It's a gift of self. God gave to you, sinner, saved by grace. Not only did he give, he gave himself to you. And when the world looks at the church, they're expecting to see giving people. They're expecting to at least see this. A body that serves one another. A body that loves one another. A body that's hands and feet and eyes and ears all work together in unity that brings glory to the head, which is Christ. And if we can't convince the world about the God of grace who's given himself, if we can't love and give one another ourselves, you're not going to convince a lost world that this works. It's only God that can breathe life into them. But don't think that the testimony of a body functioning and operating together doesn't bring glory to God and begin to put conviction onto a lost world, you're not thinking right. We're one. We're one. So this pattern of giving is something that the world must see. God gave himself. He gave himself. And as a matter of fact, you know what? He picked you. We learned in chapter 1, before the foundation of the earth, what did he do? He chose you. You can't get away from it. Sorry. If you're in Christ, you are predestined. If you're in Christ, he chose you. He means he selected, he picked out. There's no reason to get into the argument, well, what about free will? You know what? The Bible's real clear. Whosoever cometh unto me, let them what? Come. But no one comes to the Son unless the Father draws him. 
So we'll go back to that old sign and that old scenario. You know what? You were chosen. God did pick you, believer. I can't do anything about it. That's what the Bible teaches. That does not take away from human responsibility to repent and call on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. Right? You can't mess the two together. They just are. So the point is this. God chose you. He picked you. It's one thing for a holy, righteous God to give anything to a decrepit, wretched sinner. So think about it. We see acts of love through God to the whole world, don't we? The rain falls on the wicked as it does the righteous. The sun shines on the wicked as it does the righteous. The wicked can have children and be blessed with families, and the wicked can go out and go to the beach and enjoy God's creation just as well as a, a, a someone who's saved by grace. Amen? But God gave not only himself, he gave his son for you. Those of you that are married, are thinking about getting married. You don't pick just anyone, amen? I would be burdened if I watched my kids go just pick anyone to spend life with. I would be burdened if they just gave themselves for life to someone that showed affection to them once, or twice, or three times, whatever. That selection must be carefully done. And get this. Did God choose you? Yes. But it's not because you deserve it. It's not because I deserve it. So when you understand the concept of the gift that was granted in Him choosing you for eternal life, hopefully the response is that you're living from that place of grace. Gift. 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 You want to thank Him for it? Then live a life of thankfulness. And then you, were, then you guys were able to operate as one. And here we go. Verse 4. Here's our study. This is a conclusion of this thought here. So it's all kind of taken and it concludes as one. All wrapped up in one. Verses 4 through 6. 6 are kind of one thought that all kind of formulate together. And it's just this one big thought of oneness. Sevenfold oneness, by the way. The number of profession in the Bible is seven. There's seven ones here we're going to look at. We're going to kind of go through them rather rapidly. Everything ever birthed or designed within the body of Christ, you guys, is always of a one concept. A concept of one. A concept of oneness. A concept of unity. And we see it defined for us here. As you know, in Ephesians 3.15, we are one family, right? We are one family, unified. And therefore, we are, as believers, we are one what? Body. We're one body. Okay, this is not an exhortation. This is a de declaration. This is a declared truth. He's saying the fact is you're one body. Believers, you are one body. Now, take this room, for instance. What do we have here? We have... The visible church. This is the visible church. There's also an invisible church. Because you could have a room ten times this size, with ten times the amount of people, with ten times the amount of people saying, I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, my Savior, and I'm a sinner saved by grace, and He's my Lord. That's the visible church. That's... Ten times this amount, or this amount, professing Christianity. But we can assume that in a room this size, not everyone in here that professes,
confesses with their mouth that they know Christ, really know him. St. Augustine, many claim that he was the greatest theologian that's ever lived. Certainly of the first thousand years of Christianity, he was the greatest theologian. He took the teaching of Jesus of the wheat and the tares. Hey, wheat and tares grow up together. In the field, you know what they do? They appear to look exactly alike. And you cannot distinguish one from the other. You can't distinguish the wheat from the tares. So Jesus taught and used that as an illustration of true believers and said believers. He said the only way you're going to be able to tell is at the end of the age during the harvest. Because the harvest here is a picture of judgment. And when the sickle was chops and hacks and you would throw up the wheat, chaff goes, it blows away in the wind, these tares will be revealed as not being real wheat. So within the visible church, there's also an invisible church. And the invisible church are those who are truly of the body. See, you can, can we, do we all know who Shaq is, the big basketball guy, seven foot three, whatever he is, right? I was trying to think of an illustration of someone everyone would know. I don't watch a lot of TV, but I, I asked my wife if she knew who Shaq was. And if she knows who Shaq was, I figure everyone knows who Shaq is. <laughs> You can come up to me after service and say, I know Shaq. I go, you do? Yes, I do. I know where he lives. He lives in Malibu. I know he's got a big house. Or actually, houses, plural. I know some of the cars he drives. I know he's got a custom motorcycle made for his size. And I know he's got a wife. I know how many kids he has. I go, really? How often do you talk to him? Probably three days a week. Really? Well, come to find out, the only talking you do to Shaq is through your TV screen when he misses a free throw. Okay? You can say all day long that you know Shaq, but you bring Shaq into the room. You say, yeah, there's your buddy Larry over there. Who? Larry. He says he talks to you three times a week. I don't know Larry. Many people claim to know Jesus Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 7, Most assuredly I say to you, on that day, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Many will cry out in that day, but Lord, we did this in your name, and we did that in your name, and we did all these miracles in your name. And his simple response will be, depart from me, you who practice iniquity. I never knew you. Never means never, at all, any time, whatsoever. There is one body. But there's one visible body which professes, but within that visible body is an invisible body, which is the true body, and that is the body that is the one body, the one body that will spend eternity with the head, Jesus Christ. So we're one body. Amen? That leads to we're one spirit. You, believer, are built is the habitation of the Holy Spirit. The habitation of the Holy Spirit. If you remember in chapter 2, we believers are built on the foundation. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone in whom the whole building is fit together and it grows into one holy temple of the Lord. Individual little blocks filled with the Holy Spirit that makes up the whole temple. Amen? We're one spirit. In one spirit, the one true spirit, God the Holy Spirit, indwells every true believer though they may be in the invisible church. There's some people locked up. We were praying with some men this morning, and he prayed on behalf of those who are locked up. And they're not able to fellowship with the visible body, but they're part of the real body. 
one spirit. You know, we go, what about all these denominations? What about all these crazy people who run around with all this emotionalism, up and down the aisles, acting all crazy, not teaching the Word of God? Within there, there's true believers. You can have the most orthodox Bible-teaching church, and I'll tell you what, inside that visible church, there's non-believers as well. But come the harvest, we'll know. The bottom line is, we're one body, and the one true Spirit of God indwells every true part of the body. Got it? Every true part. God knows who His are. But a lot of times, here's what happens, and a lot of this quirky teaching that you see, especially on the TV, a lot of times personality, a lot of times emotionalism gets in front of the declared truth of the Word of God. So rather than upholding the Word of God as above all and beyond all and to the benefit of all who's in Christ, the personality of the person that's supposed to bring in the truth gets in the way of that which is to be declared. And I believe that if the majority of the church today would get right with the Holy Spirit individually, even those that have the big TV missions and the big TV platforms would get right with God, it would purify doctrine. There wouldn't be so much separation. Because we're called to be one. But we never neglect doctrine, which means correct teaching. Okay? We don't come with some ecumenical movement. Let's just lay doctrine aside and love Jesus. We talked about that last week. No. Paul instructed Timothy, fight for the doctrine. Uphold the doctrine. Give yourself to the doctrine. Give yourself to the study of doctrine. Doctrine purifies, guys. So, we are one body. We are one spirit. And we all have one hope of our calling, right? Do you anticipate the return of the Lord Jesus Christ? I hope you do, because that's our hope. You see, you don't have to hope to get saved. You can have confidence. If you're a believer, you should have the confidence that you are saved. If you're walking in disobedience, the first thing you'll lose, it's not going to be your salvation. If you have it, you'll lose the confidence of it. You can't walk in disobedience and rebellion and have confidence that you are truly His, you see. That's part of discipline. Assurance is a product of a life that abides in Christ. Assurance is a product of me abiding in Him and Him abiding in me. One, here's the vine, I'm the branch, abide outside of the branch, you wither up and you die. The branch, if it's abiding in the vine, gets all the life, all the nutrients, and everything that's in the vine goes right into the branch, and from out of the branch comes what? Through to what? Spirit, the one who lives in you. So we are one body. We are one spirit. We have one hope. Look for the Lord's return. If you knew Jesus was coming back in 24 hours, 11.05, Monday morning, would it change the way you live your life? You know what the hope for the Christian should be? You know what the answer to the Christian who's walking in the power of the Spirit should be? Wouldn't change anything I'm doing. Because I'm yielded to the Spirit. I'm functioning to the, according to the gift that He's imparted to me. I'm walking in the Spirit. I'm abiding in Him. He's abiding in me. My life brings glory to Him. And I've got three things set up tomorrow. People I've got to go talk to or people I've got to go teach. And you know what? I'm going to continue right on doing what I'm supposed to do. And He comes back at 11.05. Glory to God. That's our hope. One hope. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the rightful owner and sovereign ruler of your soul. Period, believer. If you're not allowing him that, then you're in sin. And there's one simple thing, one simple thing to do. Repent. Repent. You know the Christian life, you guys, is a continual, ongoing state of repentance.
period. You got sinful thoughts every day. If you start yielding yourself to your thoughts, confessing, repenting, and turning from the thoughts, the thoughts won't manifest themselves into action or reaction, you see. Start there. Purify yourself within. And then you'll win the battle on the outside, as we talked about. See, there's one Lord. Now, Jesus said many will come in my name, right? There'll be many false Christs. But regardless of what they say, there is one. There's one Lord. One Savior. There's no other name given under heaven among by which men must be saved. Acts 4.12. Romans 10.12. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You got a problem with being chosen and picked out? There's a verse for you. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord Jesus in repentance and surrender of their life to him shall be what? Saved. You know why they can call on him? Because he breaks them enough and brings them to a point of reality that they got nothing to offer him, offer him but their very life. That's grace. That's grace. One faith. We have one Lord that moves to one faith. One settled body of truth deposited in each Christian believer. One faith. You know, Jude 3, it says, I found it necessary to write, you to, write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. That's the true gospel, guys, and all the implications of it. There's only one true gospel. There's many gospels being spewed out, spit out, barfed out, that are not the true gospel. There's one faith. One true faith. There's not many roads that lead to God's God. God's not a hub, and that so long as you're sincere in your belief, whatever your belief is leads to God, true. Not true. False. As true as you may think that is. That's a lie. There's one, one way. Broad is the way and wide is the road that leads to destruction, but narrow is the gate and straight is the way that leads to eternal life. And the gatekeeper, Jesus himself. Jesus himself. That's one faith. 2 Timothy 2, Paul says to Timothy, he says, The things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. My goal as a minister, my goal as a shepherd, my goal as a pastor is to train up other men to take the same baton that Paul gave to Timothy and give it to the next generation to preach the word of God from the pulpit. To teach the word of God to God's people so that they know the one true faith and they hold on to it. That leads us to one baptism. Now, since Paul's discussing one body here, it's likely that this baptism that he's referring to is baptism into Christ. Okay? Baptism of the Holy Spirit takes place when He breathes spiritual life in you. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, brings you to the place of repentance, brings you to the place of belief, you see. Some, some quirky, quacky teachers out there say that you need to pursue being baptized with the Spirit. You're not commanded to be baptized in the Spirit. You and I, believer, are commanded to walk in the Spirit. He does that supernaturally. He does that as his own. That's an expression of his grace at his time as he pleases to bring, breathe life into the center, you see. That's when you become born again. One baptism. So, what is that baptism? Being baptized into Christ, such as Romans 6 shows us? What does it lead the believer to do? To go out publicly and to be baptized in water. Because being baptized in water is not world representation. Let me say that again. 
being baptized in water is an outward representation, an outward testimony of identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Therefore, I'm testifying among my brothers and sisters that I profess Christ, I've repented of my sins, I'm now accountable to the body as I'm baptized in this water. So there's two baptisms for the true believer. Baptism of the Spirit, which he takes, which he does, and he initiates when he makes you a believer. And then we go, out of obedience, to be baptized to identify with all that he's done for us, you see. One, 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 one. We are all one in this, you see. And that leads to one God and Father, the great I am that I am. Amen? The God and Father, the one God. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Shema. Everything that defines our faith, you guys, is one. Everything that defines our faith and as a body is one. We are one body, many parts. Now that this concept of oneness, sevenfold oneness, is complete, now look at how Paul transitions his thought in verse 7. Each one of us, grace was what? Given to the measure of Christ's gift. Now he's going to look at, we're going to look at three things here. Two of them today. The number one thing is the gift, the gifts of Christ to the individual believer. We got the concept of this oneness down, I hope. Amen? We are one. And we serve one God. So now there's gifts that have been dispensed to each one of you that makes up the body. There's some hands out there. There's some mouths out there. There's some eyes out there. There's some ears out there. We must function in a manner that rightly reflects what? The head. The head. And in verses 8 through 10, what Paul does, he, he shows us how Christ gained the right to give these gifts. Okay, so those are the two things we're going to move and look at now. And then next week we'll look at the gift of the gifts of Christ to the church as a whole. Are you with me? Are you sure? Alright. So now he's talking about variety and individuality within that body that is one. Thank you. Thank you very much. Remember, God has freely exercised his grace in this area. Okay? You're not called to pray, Lord, I pray that you'll give me the gift of uh, preaching, or I pray that you'll give me the gift of uh, helps. You know what? He gives those gifts as, guess what? As he sees fit, sister. As he desires. You don't need to pray for the gifts. He imparts the gift. You know, in 1 Corinthians, there's a part that says, pray earnestly for this gift, but that's taken out of context a lot, because 1 Corinthians chapter tw uh, 12, he talks about the gifts, and he's saying, look, you guys are disputing and arguing about wanting the best gifts, or wanting those which manifest themselves publicly. And then he says, where he says, but desire earnestly those gifts, what he's saying is, what that means is, even though God dispenses these gifts, you guys are still arguing in earnestly, earnestly desiring those gifts that manifest themselves publicly to draw attention to yourself. He goes, but I showed you a better way. And then he goes into chapter 13, which talks all about love. Love. So God dispenses the gifts as he sees fit. 1 Corinthians 12, 11. Listen to this. But one and the same Spirit works all things distributing to each one individually as he wills. He wills. 
Now, there's many gifts in the body in a multiplicity of function so that we can be one and operate as one. My body remembers bad co. It's disrupting his life, right? He limped over to me this morning. He'll limp out of here today. Just watch. Look for the guy that's limping. Now, as we looked at verse 1 Corinthians 12, turn that just quickly, turn there, because I want to point a couple things out. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He talks about all these gifts. He talks about, you know, he set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. Verse 18, chapter 12. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? If you were all ears, how would the body work? Okay? You walk out of your house today, you didn't leave your hand at home, right? You shook hands with somebody because it was attached to your body. But if, you're, if your hand was jealous of the ear and wanted to be an ear, you become ineffective, right? Wouldn't operate correctly. And look at verse 23. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor, and our unpresentable parts have greater modesty. And I talked about the liver. Not a very appealing looking thing, but if you didn't have it, your body would shut down now. Immediately. So look, guys, there's gifts distributed here. Not everyone's going to be a preacher. Someone might want to be a preacher. They're not gifted to be a preacher. They don't need to be a preacher. They might have the gifts of helps, so they need to operate within the body and simply show up to serve to discover where their gift is and then to operate and function within that gift, which is given by God in the first place. Instead of fighting and quabbling and squabbling about, well, I want to be an ear, or I want to be a tongue, or I want to be an eye, right? That's what the Corinthians were doing. That's exactly what they were doing. You can't be one and you can't be unified in a bond of peace if you're squabbling amongst one another. Amen? So what do I do? If you want to know where your gifts are, you got to show up on game day, right? You show up on game day because you showed up to practice. Guys who don't show up to practice don't play on game day. The only way to understand where you're gifted, just like football guys in football camps right now, guys in football camps are going to start getting cut before NFL season start, starts. And the guys who are operating within their gift, working harder, working out the skills that they have, will start. But the only way to reveal where someone is truly gifted is to show up and practice. Amen? So we have to become more involved than just Sunday Christians. We have to involve ourselves, humble ourselves, and serve one another, and then we're able to see where we're gifted. Are you with me? Very good. Okay, look at verse 8. God's given each one of you a gift. Operate within it. So, verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Okay, now, here's what Paul's doing. Paul wants to go on, and he's going to move on in verse 11, which we'll get to next week. And he's going to reveal and show to us the gifts that were given to the church as a whole, universally, from the time that Christ ascended. But he stops. He stops, and he says this, Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. He's quoting Psalm 68, 18. 
Okay? Now, if you go study Psalm 68, you'll realize the context is God getting ready to go out to war. God's getting ready to go out to war against his enemies. And if God sets out to go to war against his enemies, guess who wins? God does. Hands down, no question about it. If he's going to buckle up and boot himself up for war, he's going to win. So this is a psalm of David. David penned the words. It's a victory hymn. David was a warrior, right? We know David was a warrior. So the context is, the celebration is the victory of Israel against the Jebusite city, which allowed the Ark of the Covenant to ascend back up to Mount Zion, the crowning hill of Jerusalem, to its rightful place. You get it? The Psalm of David, conquering king, a victory hymn which depicts victory over the Jebusite city which brought and allowed the Ark of the Covenant to ascend back up to Mount Zion, the crowning hill of Jerusalem, to its rightful place. Alright? God is victor. He is victor. Context here in Ephesians, this is victory of Jesus Christ over Satan, sin, death, and hell. And Paul interprets this Old Testament passage as Christ being the fulfillment of it. Okay, we got the picture? See, when a king would go out to war, here's what he would do. He would descend. He would go down into the valley. He would go to war. He would lead his men. You would fight. You would defend. You would do whatever it takes to lead your men to defeat this enemy territory and enemy camps and your enemy at hand. When the king would win, he would get in his chariot, and he would ascend up to Mount Zion. He would ascend back up Jerusalem. And you know what he would have with him, guys? Spoil. Okay? If you go to war with someone and you defeat them, what they would do is they would take all the gold, all the silver, anything that they could utilize and give out to their nation, it's called spoil. You defeat your foe, you leave them laying dead, and you pick off of them the spoil, and you take it in and you distribute it. So here comes the conquering king, right? In his chariot, victorious. On the right hand, he's got spoil. And, check it out, captive enemies. Those who weren't killed, they became slaves of that nation. All right? On the left hand, you know what else he had with him? You got spoil, and you got captives of the enemy that you're taking back home, you know who else you have on the left? Your own people that were in bondage or were enslaved to that nation. You know, you're a slave that was free, right? We learned that in chapter 1. So here's Christ, our great conquering hero, who ascended, leading captivity captive, leading those of us that were caught up captive of Satan, released and freed from the bondage of sin and death, brought right back into his side to the Mount of Victory, you see? That's the picture. That's what Paul is stopping to declare. Okay, check it out. When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. So the spoil that he would take off, he would distribute. You get it? He would distribute the spoil. 
Because if you read Psalm 68, guys, it said, and he received gifts of men. Paul turns it in Ephesians and said he gives gifts to men. So that which the victor would take, he would receive from men for the sake of distributing to men. So the thing that he took from the enemy, he now distributed to his people. You get it? That's Christ. That's the picture of Christ. He led you who were captive to sin, to Satan, and he freed you from the enemy's camp and he's brought you into his own. We've been freed. Rejoice. Amen? Glory. Glory. Brethren, we're free. We're free. Check it out. Now this he ascended. Where did Christ ascend to? After his earthly ministry? Back to his throne, right? Okay, and when I say back to his throne, you have to understand, Jesus is not a man that we decided to make God. Jesus is God who came down out of heaven and became one of you, one of us. Fleshly speaking, he became a human being. So he was God who took on flesh. He's God who took on the form of humanity. He's God whether you believe it or not, you see. No matter what the world says, Jesus Christ is Lord. Every knee will bow and every tongue will what? Confess. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Philippians 2, do you mark this down? Jesus, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of what? Death. Even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Now here we go. Check this out now. Back in Ephesians. Now this. He ascended. We got his ascension down, right? Okay. He ascended. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? Before he could ascend, he had to descend. Now Christ, after his earthly ministry, he died on the cross. He rose from the dead. He went and stood before 500 believers eyewitnesses, and he stood before his own disciples, and he literally, in the Acts account, ascended physically up through the clouds, right back to his throne. He ascended. But before he could ascend, he had to descend into the lower parts. So to understand what lower parts means, we have to go to other portions of Scripture to see how the phrase is used for the sake of interpreting what it means. Systematic study. Got it? We good? All right then, brothers, sisters. Mark this down. Isaiah 44, 23. What I want to show you is how this phrase, lower parts, is used in other portions of Scripture. So we get the context and understanding of this lower parts. Isaiah 44, 23 says this. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord. He has done it. Shout, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, you mountains, O forests, O every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. So here's this phrase, guys, referring to earth itself. Where else are there mountains? Hills, grass, trees, right? Here on earth. Here on earth. So the phrase is referring to earth here. In this context. In Psalm 139, mark this. Psalm 139, verse 13 and 15. For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret 
and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Lower parts here has to do with the womb of a woman. Lower parts here has to do with where a baby is knit together. Where is he knit together? Where is she knit together? In the only place you can be, in the womb of a woman. Praise God for women and for my mother. For without her, I'd not be standing here today. Lower parts. Womb. In Psalm 63, verse 9, lower parts are this phrase has to do with death by the sword. The phrase is also used in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. Jesus said, when the, when the Pharisees were seeking a sign, now Jesus was raising people from the dead, healing sick, if that wasn't enough of a sign to declare him as Christ, what would be, right? But what they wanted is for him to either make the stars dance around or do something supernatural. And he says, most assuredly I say to you, no sign will be given to you except such is the sign of Jonah who was three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. For as Jonah was three days and three nights, or in the belly of the great fish rather, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So he references Jonah, because when Jonah was swallowed by this great fish, which God created for this purpose, it was a fish that was prepared for that purpose. He was in the belly of that fish three days and three nights, and then he was ejected out. Right? Jesus is three days and three nights in the, in the grave. Any part of the day in the Jewish thought is considered a day. He was there part of Friday. He was there all day Saturday. He was there part of Sunday. Any part of the day in the Jewish mind is considered a whole day. Therefore, three days. Now check this out. The intent in the phrase that Paul uses here is not to point out a specific place. What is meant to point out is the incarnation of Christ and the great length of humility at which he went to become a human being, you see. He came out of glory and he became a human being, living on earth, born in the womb, killed by his death on the cross, hit with the side and his side with a spear, and then he went to the grave. Now, there's another place in which he descended that we have to make note of. Okay, and I want you to turn to this, 1 Peter chapter 3. Before Christ could ascend, he had to descend to the earth, right? Before he could literally ascend back into heaven, he had to descend from his throne, become a human being. He was born from a woman, and he, the conquering king over sin and death, ascended. 1 Peter chapter 3. There's someplace else he descended. 1 Peter, chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Now the cross, if you'd have been there that day, it would have looked like defeat, wouldn't it? It would have looked like defeat. From the human perspective, Christ being brutally beaten, beyond recognition, spit on, crown of thorns, bloody pulp. Hanging on a cross looked like defeat. But Jesus said when he died, it is what? Finished. Unto you, Father, I commit my spirit, right? So Jesus, upon his death, look at this. 
looked it looked like defeat physically, but it was a spiritual victory. Verse 19. By whom also he went. He's made alive by the Spirit, verse 18. By whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. Now check it out. He went and preached. Now he wasn't given the gospel good news message because in the great abyss... There is demons that are chained. There's demons running about here, amen? There's demons that attempt to afflict you. There's demons that attempt to get you to yield to your flesh, temptation of your flesh, temptation from Satan, all to get you and I, who are righteous in the sight of God, to dishonor God. Can you get a witness? Right? Nobody in here is without that. That's just his life. That's life, saved by grace, but there's unseen forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. The only power Satan has over you believers is that which you allow him to have as far as falling into sin. That's why we're called to stand and to resist them, to put on the whole armor of God when we get to chapter 6. Okay, but there's some demons that are bound somewhere. They don't have that freedom here. Wicked, wicked demons. And the reason that they're there is defined for us in Genesis chapter 6. So you can either turn there and read with me, or you can mark this down for later. But Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, shows us where these demons in this pit came from, or at least what the reason for their presence there in that pit are. Chapter 6 of Genesis. Now it came to pass, when men began to multiply in the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men. Okay, now, sons of God here is identified elsewhere in Scripture as angels. Specifically here, fallen angels. Okay? That the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful. They took wives for themselves, of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. Yet his days shall be 120 years. The 120 years there is from that time until Noah, which you'll see in a few verses, would, it would take him that long to prepare the ark. So from that point until the completion of the ark was 120 years, and the 120 years was the time that God declared that he would prepare judgment for the earth, and the time that he actually unleashed it. it took Noah 120 years to build the ark. And eight souls were saved from that. Everyone else on the planet died. Judgment of God. The wrath of God. God's coming again with wrath, and it's not going to be with water. It's going to be with fire. Just as the wrath of God came from the floods that came from above and the great waters that broke loose from underneath, it flooded the earth. But those who were saved by grace were lifted up out of judgment, you see. And I believe that the Bible shows us that when before the wrath of God falls upon the earth and the unredeemed and those who don't know Christ, that he's going to lift up his church out of judgment. Continuing. Verse 4, there were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Some people believe that the demons had the ability, or Satan had the ability to create flesh in which it was all demon and all this. I don't see anywhere where Satan has the power to create, 
but I certainly know that demons can possess. And I would interpret this as demons possessing mankind, coming into women, having children, and from that came these giants and the wickedness of men, which in verse 5 says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And God calls his faithful man Noah, calls him out, gives him instruction, builds a boat, God brings all the animals on it. The family goes on. 120 years later, the wrath of God is released out of heaven. Those demons that possessed these individuals who went into the sun's sexual intimacy with these women and formed this wicked race are bound in the abyss, chained by God, reserved for the day of judgment. They're going to be released. Check it out. Mark this, 2 Peter 2. 2 Peter 2, verse 4. And he's referring to these demons. God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. 2 Peter 2, 4. Mark this, Jude 6. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. The great day, the great tribulation, God will unleash wrath upon the earth of which man has yet to see. Men will seek death. They will attempt to kill themselves and will be unable to seek and find death. God's going to stop the winds. He's going to have his angels take the four corners of the earth and all the wind is going to cease. I've been thinking a lot about that lately. It's super hot here in Southern California. Extremely humid. Right? And when that wind blows, I rejoice. I sit on my front porch and I, oh, Lord, thank you. Can you imagine when the wind ceases on the earth? You have the stagnation of death. Every creature in the sea, dead. The stench, the evil. Imagine. And he stops the wind. And then he unleashes from the pit of the abyss, the pit of hell, he releases these chained demons to unleash attack upon the earth. Revelation 9, verse 1. Then the fifth angel sounded. I saw a star falling from heaven of the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. He opened the bottomless pit. Smoke arose out of the pit like smoke of a great furnace. John uses the word like a lot. In Revelation, he says, like the smoke of a great furnace. John has seen things in the supernatural realm. God has given him divine revelation of the things that would come to pass. And he uses the word like because how else can he describe it? It was like this. It was like that. It was like this. Here, it was like smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. And out of the smoke, locusts came out of the earth, and to them was given power as the scorpions of the earth had power. The victim of a scorpion's sting foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth because of the pain and suffering, and the demons are going to be given that kind of power. That's heavy. If you're in Christ, praise God, You'll be relinquished from that wrath. If you're not in Christ and he comes back to if he comes back to get his church, you're not in Christ, you will suffer the consequence of sin. Grace is a gift. Jesus gave. God gave his son. It'd be a lot easier for me 
die for anybody than it would be for me to take my son, whom I love and I adore and I cherish, to say, man, don't take my head off, take my son's head off. Right? What's easier, men, to give yourself or to give your kid? If you're a man, you'll give yourself. Amen? God gave his son. So that the judgment and wrath of a holy God will not be poured out upon you. So as a body, as one, he's given you gifts to function while we're on earth to rightly reflect the head, Jesus Christ. We therefore must work and endeavor to keep this unity of oneness, working hard at keeping it in love. We must endeavor to work according to the gift that God has imparted to you. If you don't know what it is, begin to serve. And as you begin to serve, it will manifest itself. You may have the gift of... Uh, um, my wife has the gift of hospitality. I couldn't think of the word. <laughs> my gift has the wife of hospitality. She just operates... Amen, amen, brother. She just operates in it. She's been operating in it for years. That's her number... Just an extremely vivid, accurate picture of my wife. Gift of hospitality. What gift do you have? We're closing up here. Colossians 2.13 Christ on that day, the reason he ascended is because he descended to become a human being to a womb, through a woman, growing up as a man, but perfect without sin as the God-man. And he ascended back up after his victory, which was the cross, his victory over sin and death, and he has spoil, which he's given to you, and he has the right to give to you because he is the victor over sin, death, Satan, and hell, and has dispensed to you a particular gift. Therefore, that's why he has the right, you see? That's how all this ties together. We're one, and the reason we are one is because you're justified, declared free from all blame, so now you need to operate as part of this body that functions as a whole. One thing will kill it. Pride. Unrepentant, unconfessed sin. Inactivity. Laziness. Right? Jesus made a spectacle. He made a mockery of the demons. He made a mockery of Satan. And he made a mockery of the demons. They're chained in the pit of the abyss who are being reserved for judgment. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, you and me, he's made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Look, brothers and sisters, beloved, you're forgiven. The slate is clean and it will always remain clean. You will never pay for any sin in your life before God, if you are in Christ. Never. It was paid for at the cross. You get it? Hallelujah. Amen, brother. Whoever said that. If you are not covered by the blood of Christ, you will pay for your own sin. We who are in Christ, sinners, we know we are saved by grace. We beg you, we urge you, we beseech you. Call upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved today. Here it is, verse 14. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. That was all Christ's act on the cross. 
victory. He ascended because he descended. He descended to earth. He won the war. He rose back up, victor. And all the spoil he took to give to you for the sake of rightly representing our master, our king, our conquering hero, our conquering leader, to function as a body, one. That's what we're called to do. Amen? So therefore, let's strive, let's yield ourselves to him so that we can do it. And we, in turn, loving one another, will right really reflect the head, which gives testimony to a lost world, you see. We're called to love one another, and it's the world that will recognize him because of the love that we have for who? One another. The one another is us. Saved by grace. You're privileged if you're in Christ. So look at salvation. It's not just simply something that comes from his hand. Look at it as the very gift to you so that you can serve at his hand. Amen? And we will rightly reflect the head as one working together individually.